we can turn the ship around for ourselves personally. The government may never get there, but what can we do to set ourselves in a position where you'll have less dependency on Social Security because you've done some things today to prepare you so that even though you might get a Social Security check, it will be a small portion of what you're actually living on. Welcome to Getting Money Right, a show dedicated to helping you achieve financial freedom through education and inspiration so that you can be free to pursue your true life's purpose. We're your hosts, David Thompson and Leo Sabo. And in this episode of Getting Money Right, we're going back into Social Security. We're talking a little bit more about Social Security and really wrapping up the conversation. We've talked about some of the strategies and timing. And so, Leo, why don't you just kind of give us a little recap of some of the things we've talked about? And then today, we'll dig into some things that you can do to be prepared. Yeah, so we started with just identifying what Social Security is, that it's a government program. And really what it is is the OASDI. It's the Old Age Survivors and Disability Insurance Program. It's something that began in 1935. Taxes were collected from 1937, and then slowly from 1940 up until today, people have been getting benefits, a monthly check that comes from the government based on a tax that they pay into every single paycheck. And so the history is that the intentionality of the program was to create a a program that would sustain retirees and provide a partial income for them in retirement. And, you know, we talked about the biblical beginnings that obviously the heart behind this program was to help people in that time of life when they could no longer work or they were just at that point where it's like, okay, I've I've worked 40, 50 years. It's time for me to slow down or stop. And the idea is great. And everything about it, I think, was great. But the problem, as we talked about, is the fiscal responsibility and some of the things that have happened with this program. And we also talked about the fact that the government has actually dipped their hands into this coffer many, many times. And even though there's supposed to be $2.5 trillion in this in these funds, we've learned that that's actually not the truth. Right. Right. Yeah. That, you know, this has all been borrowed back out and that this has been used to buy government treasury bonds Mm -hmm. and other bonds through the government. So we went into all the history of that into, you know, when the Social Security started to dip in the 70s and when there were issues and so how they had to fix that. And the the fact that we're going to run into another time period pretty soon where Social Security doesn't have any money in it. That's going to happen. And right now we're relying on a three to one ratio where there are three workers for every one person receiving benefits. Right. But in the future, we're looking at a two to one ratio. Right. And part of that, as we talked in the last episode, is this this birth rate having dropped from having families that were having four children at the beginning of a century uh, and even at the end of last century to what now is more of two families. And eventually the trend is that there's going to be less than two kids per family. The average is going to be somewhere in the high one point something. And the downside to that is that eventually it can get to the point where there's going to be required one worker to fund one retiree. And it's just not sustainable. It's something that's just not going to work. Yeah. So right now you can receive your full benefit somewhere between age 66 and 67. Uh, You can start taking your benefits at 62. Mm -hmm. But every year that you wait, you get another 8% for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your original benefit was going to be $1,000 when you're 62, but you waited till you're 63, it would be 1080 And then it would compound an extra 8% every year. So by the time you're 70, 
you could be looking at more than $1,000 more a year. So we said, hey, if you can, it most likely makes sense to wait Mm -hmm. and not take Social Security as soon as you get access to it. You want to wait so that it will compound and grow because then for the rest of your life, you'll receive a higher benefit. Right. Now, if you know that you have physical problems or you just financially can't make it day to day, we'd recommend that you change your lifestyle dramatically before right. taking Social Security. Absolutely. Uh, but there are going to be scenarios where it makes sense to sign up at age 62, especially if you have poor health and you don't think that you're going to outlive the average lifespan. Mm-hmm. And it's all calculated based on that average lifespan. But these are the things that you want to be thinking about, you know, that extra 8% a year that you'll be receiving if you can wait. I think the biggest thing for us, David, as we've talked about this, is this notion that as the government has managed money, a lot of Americans have managed the same way, uh, which is that we tend to be optimistic that tomorrow is always going to be better and that we'll have more money and we'll get more income and eventually we could solve these problems. But I think we can learn something from watching how Social Security has been handled. You made a great analogy in the last episode how, and you used the uh, family budget as an example of how the government ran their family budget, the government funding, the same way, which is that at first, you know, when they're running a little bit tight because they're spending more than they're making, and that's the case with a lot of us, unfortunately, sometimes, the first is to borrow from a 401k loan, right? If we have a 401k loan, we're putting money aside, and we run into a hard spot, then we borrow from a 401k loan. Well, the government's done the same thing. They've dipped to the Social Security to say, we'll borrow from here, get through this tough time, and things, you know, eventually the income will grow, the government will bring in more money, the budget will be balanced, which <laughs> I've yet to see <laughs> right. in my lifetime. But the problem is that in the same way the government has done this, we have done this. I know I've done this. Yeah. And I've learned from that, and I don't do that anymore. And I think that's the benefit to looking at the situation and really saying, okay, I could see how the government has done this. I wish they would have done different, but I can personally see how this is possible. So now we talked about personal responsibility. How can we now begin to make different choices so that we can turn the ship around for ourselves personally. The government may never get there, but what can we do to set ourselves in a position where you'll have less dependency on Social Security because you've done some things today to prepare you so that even though you might get a Social Security check, it will be a small portion of what you're actually living on. Yeah, yeah. So I think that this analogy is really important because you know if somebody is struggling financially but they had been good up front and they had set money aside for their retirement in a 401k a 403b they're now looking at that money saying okay things are tight in my actual budget today yeah. so i'm going to steal from my future mm-hmm. and i'm going to borrow from that 401k well think of the social security program kind of like a 401k this is where the government has in advance set money aside for people that are going to need Social Security, mm-hmm. but because the government has so much debt, right. they've now started borrowing from their quote-unquote 401k, exactly. well, from their Social Security fund. Yeah. So I, I just pulled it up, and the U.S. national debt, this is according to the U.S. debt clock, the U.S. national debt is $22 trillion. Mm-hmm. And as Leo said, we have just the same problem with our personal debt in the United States. Right. The United States total personal debt is $19 trillion. Yep. So we're right there, $22 trillion and $19 trillion. So what Leo and I are saying is that you can clean up your personal finances, and even when the government starts to struggle with some financial issues, it won't affect you as much if you personally will pay off your personal debt, and you'll mm-hmm. completely get yourself out of consumer loans, car debt, pay off any kind of 401k loan you might have, uh, pay off your home. If you'll begin to 
work your way out of those problems, you'll be a lot less heavily affected when the government begins to run into issues. Because right now, mm-hmm. the government can borrow from Social Security. Right. But it's just like when you run out of money in your 401k to borrow from, the government will run into a time when there's not any money left in Social Security. And that's coming up. I think this is this is the year where we're going to start spending out more than what's in it. Right. And so that means that over the next 15 years, we'll be spending down the surplus. Mm-hmm. And then I think 2034, right. that's when we're going to be at the yeah. place where there'll be no more money in that account. So the government can't even borrow. So if the government's going into debt like a trillion dollars a year, then over time, this is going to be a major, major issue. And, and you know, it's just going to cause some cutbacks. It's going yeah. to cause either people to get their Social Security later in life or it's going to raise the taxes on people that are currently paying into Social Security. So if there's not three people paying in, then they're going to raise the amount of taxes that the two people pay in, mm-hmm. right? For each one person that's just trying to make it. Right. So this is where it gets really interesting. And that's why I think the analogy works. It's not a perfect analogy, but it really shows the government had started to set money aside and now they're pulling away from it right. and they're, they're drawing it down. And we've seen people do that. And when people do that, it gets them into real trouble. So the government has done this. That's what's put Social Security in trouble. But we want to turn the corner really in this show, really focus more on what is it that you and I can do, David, in order to make ourselves less dependent on the Social Security benefits program? Because we may not have it or we may not have as much as we think we'll have. Right. And so if we're not prepared for it, it's definitely going to put us in a position where our retirement, if we can even technically retire... Uh, well, I think that's what's going to happen. A lot of people are not going to have the opportunity to retire. They're going to have to work and get paid at the same time. So they'll have to work some kind of a part-time job. And it's not a matter of, I mean, you and I believe that people should work and should stay active, but it's not a matter of choice anymore. Now you have to go. Yeah. You have to work. And at 65, 70, what kind of job can you get? You know, will somebody hire you at, at top pay? Will you be able to work two weeks a month at, at really good income? Or you'll have to take a job making just above minimum wage. It's not a place anybody wants to go. And really the biggest problem I think that we want to touch on, the fact that just people aren't saving enough. So how can you get in a position where you can start saving more today? So that 30 years from now, 20 years from now, whenever that retirement horizon is for you, you'll be better prepared and you'll be able to manage your lifestyle and not have to work, not have to lower your lifestyle to the point where really living in a, in a tough situation. Yeah. Well, and Leo, you talked about some of the stats. So the average person that has paid in over their lifetime is going to be pulling out about $1,300 a month mm-hmm. from Social Security. If you're a married couple, it's $2,600 a month. But when we went through and we looked at what the average cost of living is, mm-hmm. it, for a couple, it's a minimum of 3200 to 3600 a month. Right. So let's say that you're getting maybe 2500 from Social Security. That means that there's a $1,000 gap that you need to make up for. Right. And that's not including, you know, there could be emergencies that you just haven't expected and haven't planned for. So you need to have savings as well that right. you can draw on, not just from your investments, but an emergency fund. Right. And so we were looking at it. And if you wanted to have a $1,000 a month withdrawal from investments, you would need to have about $220,000 saved in mm-hmm. an account to pull $1,000 a month from. 
Now that comes from if you were to withdraw on a 4% rate. Right. So this is a good rule of thumb that you not withdraw more than 4% of your assets per year. And so uh, let's say 10% of 200,000 would be 20,000. So 5% would be 10,000. So if you wanted to pull about $10,000 a year, you're going to need at least $220,000 set aside in savings. Now, this assumes a 3% rate of return, so you're still investing that money, and a 2% inflation rate so that you're always staying slightly ahead. Right. You're not burning through your money, basically what you're trying to say. Right, because if it's not invested and inflation's continuing to go up at 2% a year, which it has for the past 10 years or so, then you're going to actually end up with less and less money every year. So you're still going to have to keep it invested, but this is where some safe investments might come into place or just having a long-term strategy. If you want to take $2,000 a month, you'll need $440,000 in an account. If you want to take $4,000 a month, that means you're going to need almost Mm $900,000 set aside in investments. And $4,000 a month is only $48,000 a year. Yeah. And so, you know, now that being said, if you add in your social security, let's say that you're single and uh, that's $1,300 a month. So you add that to the 4,000, then you're living on around 5,300, which is a lifestyle that a lot of people are used to in the U.S., but it's not extravagant. No, not at all. So we're going to look at some of the things that you can do to reduce your lifestyle now and reduce your lifestyle in retirement and hopefully be able to live on a little bit less income and have a little bit more margin and still feel comfortable. So we have a list of things that that we certainly can go over, but just probably the biggest thing right now, I think, would be just to get out of debt. If you have debt, debt right now is robbing you from your ability to both save for the future, but, but there's also a certain amount of waste that's happening. You're working for money that's actually going to a place that's not benefiting you in any way. Which right. is kind of silly, but but that's what's happening. So if you can get out of debt, that gives you more income that you could use to save and to get yourself to a better position financially. So that's number one. Right. You've got to get out of debt, especially consumer debt. That's not just at three or four percent like a mortgage would be, but it's at eighteen, nineteen, twenty plus percent. That's just killing people. And yeah. when it's when it's in the tens of thousands of dollars and you've got, you know, a thousand or more going to just the minimum monthly payments, I mean that's If you don't get out of that, you're just losing so much ground, so much ground. Yeah, so get your cars paid off. This is a big one that a lot of people don't think about. The the three major areas in our lives is our homes and our cars and then really just lifestyle spending. So look at your cars. And if you're at a place where your cars aren't paid off, then you need to be either lowering the type of vehicle that you're driving Mm -hmm. or you need to get very aggressive at paying them off. If you can't pay it off in the next two years, then you're driving a vehicle that you really can't afford. You should be able to pay off those vehicles in the next two, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And if your vehicles ever exceed more than 50% of your annual income, now what I mean is the the asset value of that vehicle, let's say it's a $20,000 vehicle, but your annual income is only $40,000 a year, then you have way too much vehicle. So I would love to get it down to a quarter or less. So maybe a $10,000 vehicle on a $40,000 a year income. Uh, Maybe a $60,000 a year income would be a $15,000 vehicle. But what if you have two vehicles? 
well, <laughs> then you've got to keep it below that 50% range, right? Right. So you never want to have the, the value of your vehicles be more than 50%. And I would honestly say somewhere around 40% would really be the max. For yeah. Ashley and I, we've paid off our vehicles and we don't ever intend to use debt to buy vehicles again. Right. Um, so this is huge. If you'll get those cars paid off and you will learn to live a lower lifestyle, you'll learn to live with vehicles that are 10,000 instead of 20,000. Mm-hmm. That means that you have $10,000 more that can go into savings over the next 10 years. It might not be $10,000 today, but because you're not making payments on cars, that money every month can go into a savings account and that will grow in value instead of declining in value. As you own a vehicle, it goes down in value every year. Mm-hmm. But if you were to take that extra money and put it into an investment account, it'll go up in money over you know over a course of 10 years, 20 years. Right. And now you're increasing instead of decreasing. So be very aware. If you're getting close to retirement and your cars aren't paid off, you need to for sure have a plan to have those paid off in the next two years and still be able to do some of these other things or else it's time to sell those cars and buy cheaper vehicles. Yeah. And it's the idea that even if you were to buy, let's say, a car that's closer to that 40 to 50% of your yearly income, uh, the valuation of it, is that you would you would hang on to that thing for a long time. It's not just the cost of the vehicle and the payment. It's the fact that too many people buy cars too often. You know, within four to five years or as soon as they pay it off, they buy something else. So this cost of having interest attached to your payment and the fact that you always have a car payment, it's something that's really taking away a lot of income for people. And then that makes it very hard for them to save because they're putting $400 per car. So they might have anywhere from $800 to $1,000 in car payments every month. And the fact that you, they don't hang on to it and buy something else five years later, it just repeats that cycle. And I made this statement one time, I think I actually wrote a blog about this, that there's one decision that people make, especially here in the States, that keeps them from having a decent retirement, which is that they continue to buy new cars. When there's perfectly good vehicles that they don't have to buy, the brand new one that, you know, has the huge depreciation within the first year or two. And by just making that quick shift, that small shift of, I'm just going to buy used cars, buy them for cash, and then hold on to it for a long time, they can literally save four or $500 a month. That's significant over 30, 40 years. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, you're talking about having two twenty, four forty, or 800, almost $900,000 in order to have that uh, $2,000 to $4,000 income, or sorry, $1,000 to $4,000 income. Well, that's possible if you just don't have car payments. That doesn't mean you don't put money aside for cars because you obviously you have to replace them from time to time. But not having that bigger payment and the bigger value of the cars is what can set aside three, four hundred dollars a month for you to save in a 401k, an IRA, a Roth IRA, something that you could do for the next 30 to 40 years. Yeah. It'll make a big difference. Yeah. And I think that if you've made ever made the mistake of buying a brand new vehicle, if you will actually drive that car for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, yeah, yeah. if you drive it for 15 years, it's probably about the same yeah. as somebody that bought used. But you've got to drive that one vehicle for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so I would say if you do it, most of the time it's a mistake. But if you're able to live with that car for 15 years right. and take care of it and maintain it and learn about it and manage it well, then it's not really as heavy of a financial mistake. The problem is, and you really hit the nail on the head, Leo, is somebody that buys a new car and then replaces it two years or four years later mm-hmm. because they're taking that huge hit of depreciation and the value of the vehicle every couple of years. And that's expensive. So 
this is this is all really about contentment and saying, okay, if I'm going to plan to lead a decent life in retirement, I need to start with contentment now. Mm-hmm. And this is a personal rule of thumb. I don't you know usually share this, but I like to try in my mind to think of the vehicle. I only want a vehicle to lose about a thousand dollars a year in value. Or maybe, okay, let me, let me say this a different way. I only want to spend about $1,000 a year on the vehicle uh, as far as the actual cost of ownership, not necessarily the repairs, because sometimes that's unexpected. But let me tell you what I mean. I've got a vehicle that's a 2013, mm-hmm. and so that means it's six years old now from, you know, I bought it used. No, it's a 2010, and I bought it in 2013. Okay, right. so it's a 2010. I right. bought it in 2013, and so I've owned it for six years. And I bought it for about Mm $9,000. And in the six years that I've owned it, it's gone down in value to be worth about $3,000. So that means that every year that I've owned it, it's gone down in value $1,000. And so that means I essentially spent $1,000 to rent that vehicle that year. Mm -hmm. Because if I needed to sell it today, I could sell it for three grand. And so that means I've spent 6,000 to own a vehicle for six years. So in my mind, that $1,000 a year is a really good ratio. Mm -hmm. Let's say that you bought a $20,000 brand new vehicle and you drove it for 20 years. By the end of its life, it's worth zero, but you really only spent $1,000 a year yep. over that 20 yep. years. So now the, the the problem is you also have all the interest on that $20,000 up front. So you spent more than $20,000, right. but it gets a lot closer in the amount that you spend. Now that $1,000, it's a personal rule of thumb. I know people that are really good at buying vehicles, so they'll buy them used for cheaper than they're actually worth. Mm-hmm. They'll drive them for a couple of years and sell them for what they bought it for. And they'll have actually not spent any money to have that vehicle for a couple of years. And I just, I mean, I think that's super cool, but that's a, that's a talent and a gift and being able to fix up your vehicle helps with that. But for me, I try to keep that thousand dollar thing in range and, and it's not perfect, but it helps, you know, oh, I spent a thousand dollars to essentially rent this vehicle for a year. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to look at it because it does give uh, folks an idea of, so what, what price car should I buy? And what is a reasonable amount? And of course, it's different for every person. And maintenance does come into play. So so we can't ignore that. Because if you're going to buy a vehicle that's more prone to maintenance problems, something more unique, then that that's going to throw that you know $1,000 a year oh, right out time. the window and you right. might have a lot more. So it's also about buying cars that are reliable. And so we talked about this before. We've done a couple of shows on how to buy cars used and new. And the, the thought here is that as you think about this cost, it's one of those large costs that it's in every family budget. First, it's housing, then it's transportation. Those are the two major ones. And of course, food is a close third. <laughs> but but obviously, you know, we, we all have to have vehicles. Where we live, that's just a basic need for us. So if you can figure out a way to bring that cost down, whether it's you hang on to the car longer or you buy cheaper and and maintain it yourself, do things that, that lowers that cost – then it gives you that margin to be able to do the things that we're talking about, which is to save more, to get to the place where you're saving 10, 20% of your income per month. Yeah. And you're doing it consistently because you set it up in such a way that nothing's going to make you stop from doing it, right? You haven't taken on responsibilities that are going to say, okay, at this point, I just can't do this anymore. I got to stop saving. That's the worst thing that you want to do is stop saving. Once you stop savings, you're, you're just, you're, you're losing time Yeah. and you cannot gain that back. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, you know, Leo, we were talking about a friend of mine who had been going out to eat and purchasing coffee mm-hmm. and spending a lot on little non-necessary items. Right. 
while at the same time they weren't able to make their mortgage payment. Right. And they actually had to either go into debt or borrow from a family member in order to make their mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. And I'm having this discussion with them while we're eating food at a place where they have just spent, you know, fifteen, twenty dollars on food that they didn't actually have. Right. And in their mind, they weren't reconciling the fact that every time they would go get coffee and buy food out, instead of going to the grocery store where it's less than a third the cost, maybe right. like maybe a, a, an eighth the cost. Yeah. Uh, so instead of doing that, they were living well beyond their means in the way they eat out, in the luxury purchases they buy, in the type of phone they have, uh, in the, the coffee that they drink, while not being able to make their house payment. And so they're like, oh, I have to borrow. There's the disconnect. So we have to be aware that when Leo and I talk about it's important to lower your lifestyle, part of that is lower your lifestyle and and don't go get $5 lattes and eat out for lunch until you've paid off your debt and you're saving 10 to 15% of your income into retirement. Once you're doing that and you want to increase your lifestyle a little bit, great. Enjoy a nice coffee. Enjoy lunch. You know, go out to eat. That's okay. But that has to be in the overall plan. And so if you don't have the financial margin to have all your debt paid off and begin savings, yet you're using, you're enjoying all these things on the side, these luxury purchases, mm. it's going to come back and hurt you in the long run. And then Leo and I don't want to take away your enjoyment and your luxury purchases, nope. but we want to encourage you. Think through how this is going to affect your retirement a little bit. Because if you could save that $5 a day, and it's a silly analogy, but if you save that $5 a day for 30 days, and not that you have a latte every day, but when you add up all the other miscellaneous purchases, 150 bucks a month, you're looking at $1,800 a year. And when you start to put around two grand aside a year towards retirement, that that grows. That mm-hmm. can hit this $200,000 number that we talked about, which right. can be $1,000 a month in retirement, which might make up the gap between your social security and what you need to live on. So it's a little thing, but that's what we're talking about. We're not against luxury purchases. No, of course not. I went to Starbucks two or three weeks ago and it was great. You know, I had, I ate out, I had breakfast this morning at Chick-fil-A, you know, so I, I'm not opposed to, to stopping out and getting something great, but you've got to do it in the plan. Yeah. And you, exactly. You fit it into your plan and you're not sacrificing other things. And, you know, you, you can't get through one show without hearing this one thing, which is without a plan, without a budget, it's very easy to not make these things a priority. It's easy not to see that what you're spending in one place is robbing you from another because you don't have a full picture of it. So that's why we're so adamant about having a budget, having a plan that helps you to spend and then tracking your spending so you can see your behavior and see whether you're making the best choices. It's not a right or wrong. And if you have the income, it doesn't mean you can't spend it. But we all have limited resources. Nobody has an endless supply of income. So therefore, we need to make choices. Some choices are, hey, I want a coffee every morning. Nothing wrong with that. But are you sacrificing college tuition for your kids, your retirement, maybe your health down the line because of coffee? I'm sure if you had to make that choice as a black and white, do I take this or do do I take that? And you had the right perspective and you knew if I keep buying coffee at $5 per coffee per day, two, three times a day, I won't have this. You might change that. I, I certainly would. And I think that's what we're really hoping is that you have a long-term view because if, you just, if you're short-sighted in this, it's going to hurt. That's what, what's happened to Social Security is they've had a short-term perspective and have decided for the short term, we're going to borrow. We're going to take money out of here. And it's caused it to be where it is today and in danger of being completely dissolved in 15 years. 
and it's not something that we need to repeat ourselves. So make sure that your cars are paid off. Make sure that you're paying off your home. Another one is potentially move to a lower property tax state. Where we live right now, property taxes are just incredibly high. Super high. And we've had such a growth in both industry and also obviously in, in people moving into the area. That's just skyrocketed everybody's value of their home. Well, that's great if you're looking to sell, but if you're just going to park here, and my, my plan is to stay in this house for a while, I'm not looking to move anywhere. So as taxes go up, my expenses go up, right? I mean, when tax goes up an extra $1,000 a year, that's an extra $83 a month I got to come up with and put into that one category. And so you understand over time, especially as you get closer to retirement, I don't know, we were talking about this earlier that people who want to retire usually want to retire somewhere where it's warm, right? Or at least part of the time, you know, yeah. like snowbirds, they like to go down to Florida or Arizona to spend six, at least six months out of the year. And my thought was, why wait? If you really want to end up there anyway, move 10 years earlier yeah. and lower your lifestyle and lower your cost of living because taxes are lower. Everything is going to be cheaper there. Um, I won't say everything, but it is there is a lower cost of living because of the housing cost. And if you could do that, you know, 10 years prior to retirement, when you plan on retiring or even prior to taking Social Security, that might give you that extra cushion that you can save for more aggressively so that when you turn 67, 70, whenever you decide to take Social Security and actually retire, you'll just be in a better position. You may have that $220,000 aside to make up the difference or the 400 or 900. Yeah, so this is great. Talking about moving to another location, let's look at a few of the major things you'd talk about. One is property taxes. So if you have uh, a nice home and you want to keep a decent size home in retirement, maybe move to a state that has very low property taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, Hawaii, Alabama. I think the effective property tax rate in Alabama is around 0.4%. Mm. Compare that to Texas where it's over 2%. Oh, it's closer to 3 actually. Closer to 3%, <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is true when you add in the the school taxes and the all these different ordinances that are added in. So 04 uh, that is so low for every hundred thousand dollars of property that you own. That's like four hundred bucks a year. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> like that's <laughs> that you know when you come to Texas and it's three times that you're looking at three thousand uh, dollars a month mm -hmm. or a year for for taxes so on a hundred thousand. So so that's the difference is the big tax rate. So Louisiana has very low. It's a point like point five one. West Virginia point five three. Wyoming, 0.55. So if you were to stay below a 1% effective property tax rate, then it would allow you to have a little bit larger home. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have, let's say that you're in retirement, you don't have a lot of income coming in, then I would focus in on a state that has lower property taxes because you're not worried about income taxes. You're really lower worried about the property taxes. Exactly. That's what's going to take the biggest chunk out of your income. Yeah. Now, if you're in retirement and you still have a lot of money coming in, let's say that you invested really well and now you have social security plus your investment income plus a pension plus maybe you're still working a little bit on the side and then you're going to have a lot of income tax, we'll then look for a state that has no income tax. Mm -hmm. And maybe couple that with some of these other pieces. There are also a few different states that don't have any uh, sales tax. So Delaware, Montana, and Oregon don't have sales tax uh, mm. for when you go shopping. So if you know you're going to be buying a lot, then maybe live next to one of those states while you live in a state that has low property taxes or a state that has no income tax. So the states that have uh, no income tax, this is there's always going to be federal income tax, but no, no state income tax. Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Tennessee, 
Texas, where we live, which is awesome because we have no state income tax, though. That's why we see the property tax really exactly. high. So made up somehow. Made up somehow. <laughs> All right. So Washington and Wyoming, they don't impose any kind of state income tax. So if you're going to have a lot of income in retirement, look for one that has no state income tax. Right. If you're not going to have a lot of income, but you're going to have a decent sized home, look for a state that has low or no, well, not no property taxes, but low property taxes. Right. So begin to look at where are the best places to retire because that couple thousand dollars a year dramatically adds up over time because that means let's say a thousand dollars, two, three, four thousand dollars a year. That means you don't need to have a hundred thousand dollars in a savings account that you're earning money on every year to pay those monthly costs. So just be aware that this is a big piece of it. Yeah. So just to kind of wrap this up, our Hope for you is that as you've listened to the last couple of shows on Social Security and where that's headed, is that it's not made you worried, but certainly made you think more clearly about where am I going? How's this going to impact me personally? And then you'll take some of the suggestions that we've made, which is to look at paying off your debt completely, especially the consumer debt, to find cars that are either cheaper or that cars that you can hang on to longer so that you can bring that cost down to pay off your mortgage, certainly sooner than 30 years, so that you can be better prepared, not only to save more, but to have a lower cost of living as you approach those retirement years. And then if you have that ability to move to a state that has lower taxes, both property and state income taxes, then you can do that in order to put yourself in a position to be more prepared, again, for retirement and to be able to save more uh, while you're preparing for retirement. So we hope this show has been helpful to you. Our desire is to continue to educate and to help you to have a long-term horizon about your finances, to win with money, and to be able to one day be in a financial position where you're not stressed out about it, and you're more focused on what you're gifted to do, because that's our real mission, is to help you to be freed up so you can pursue your true life's purpose. So we just want to thank you for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on all the social media platform, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And we'd just love for you to connect with us and let us know how we're doing. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a, a like, uh, make a comment, let us know what other episodes you'd be interested in. We're always looking to create more content that's useful for you, our audience. So please let us know. If you have questions, we'd love to answer them. You can also go to leosabo.com and find resources, tools, and helpful content. Our desire is to help educate you, but also to resource you with things that will help you to manage your money better, both from content, but also from resources. So go to the resource page. You'll find tools there to help you to put into action some of the things we've been talking about. Also visit stewardshippastors.com. David is wrapping up his writing his book on Jesus on Money. It's going to be an exciting book that I think many people will benefit from. I'm just excited about this book launch because I think it's going to be a resource that many pastors and many church leaders will also be able to use in their own ministries. Well, we look forward to having you join us next time so that together we, we can, can keep, keep getting, getting money, money right. right. So we have to be aware that when Leo and I talk about it's important to lower your lifestyle, part of that is lower your lifestyle and, and don't go get $5 lattes and eat out for lunch until you've paid off your debt and you're saving 10 to 15% of your income into retirement. Once you're doing that and you want to increase your lifestyle a little bit, great. Enjoy a nice coffee. Enjoy lunch. You know, go out to eat. That's okay. But that has to be in the overall plan 